0: Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. All right, we have with us today Dr. Glenn Arberry. He is president of Wyoming Catholic College. He has a doctorate in literature and politics from the University of Dallas, and he has taught at University of St. Thomas in Houston, Thomas More College of Liberal Arts in Merrimack, New Hampshire, and Assumption College. His books include Literature Matter, Why Literature Matters and Augustine's Confessions and Its Influence. He has also uh, published a novel, Bearings and Distances, published in 2015. And most of all, he has eight children. Welcome, Dr. Glenn. Thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> where, where did you find time to do all that, all that work and, and also have eight kids?
1: Oh gosh, that's a question you should ask my wife because indeed, she's indeed she also did all that work, you know. She's been <laughs> teaching the whole time.
0: Yeah, and, and teaching, yes, yes, both of you. Um so well I have one and he's too much for me. I never knew what a marshmallow I was until I had until I had a child. So uh my respect for you is, is gone up eightfold. Uh oh, so gosh, now uh so we, we you you're the president of Wyoming Catholic, uh but you, you grew up in the deep south. And you went to New England, and you were an academic in New England for many years, and then you went out to Wyoming. That's quite that's quite a change. Did did, did, did those wide-open spaces and no trees just, just put the zap on your vision for a while, Dr. Glenn?
1: Oh, they did indeed. Boy, um, actually, the first experience of that was getting to Texas, you know, when I, where I'd come from the deep woods of Georgia and went to the mesquite trees of Texas. It was a shock but getting to wyoming even more so yeah
0: one of the things that you emphasize at wyoming catholic is the importance of the landscape you get out the students uh the students are pretty athletic they do a lot of horsemanship do you see a lot of them who come from far away or are really sort of blown away by by the american west
1: oh they certainly are um You know, they come from all over the country, some like me from the deep south, a lot of them from New England, uh, many from the Midwest. And when they get out and see these mountain landscapes, I think it's transformative just in itself. And they they get up into the mountains when they come here as freshmen that that first month. They come a week before classes begin. They have a about excuse me a month before classes began they have a week to get ready and then three weeks up in the mountains backpacking um it's it's quite a transformative adventure
0: for them well one thing i was wondering is uh with the american west and and you know the mountains and the plains of, of wyoming a big part of that do do the students who come there do they feel the the history of of the you know the little bighorn, or of you know Buffalo Buffalo Bill Cody Cody Wyoming, do they is is that is that a live presence there?
1: I think for a few of them it must be, but for the majority of them I don't think so. Um, it's sort of like. Um, well, you know, growing up in the South, when I grew up there, the Civil War was very much still a presence, but that was because it was the centennial of the Civil War at that time. Um, I don't know that that they feel the, the Western part so much until we read the Virginian, um, you know, Owen Wister's novel, which is really, it's set in Wyoming. Smile when you say that. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, so... I don't know that the the history of the west uh is present to them until they're here for a while.
0: Right. Right. Well, it could be that, you know, our generation, we we grew up not only closer in time to the the west, the American west, but also with all those movies. And so I've shown, you know, I've shown my my son, you know, movies you know, Gary Cooper as Wild Bill Hickok, or My Darling Clementine, those John Ford movies, and I'm not sure that, you know, those movies were on TV all the time in, in you know, in the early 70s when I was 10 years old, and, and so we were just exposed to the Western, constantly, and all the Western TV shows uh, that were on, from, from Gunsmoke to The Virginian and The Rifleman, and so that that may be gone for for young Americans today because it's just it's just another time. Well, I think so. Uh,
1: when I was growing up in the fifties and early sixties, you know, I think I must be about ten years older than you are. Um, the western was everywhere. I mean, it was at the theaters. You know, there were the TV shows were mostly westerns, the popular ones, and I think that you know, the cultural shift that took place in the 60s kind of took the steam out of that. Um, Westerns began to be ironized, you know, um, even by the t- yeah, by the time you get to the man who shot Liberty Violence and John Ford, you already, you know, you're already feeling a shift there, a kind of self-consciousness about it that, that wasn't there earlier. Um, what was the Dustin Hoffman movie, a Little Big Man, you know, of course, yeah, of course, you know, Native Americans, it's it's funny to say cowboys and Native Americans, you know, um,
0: I mean, we grew up, we grew up in a, in a different era. Cowboys and Indians. Well, this, this actually leans into one of the, one of the topics that I wanted to address for our show. Uh, you are, you're a classical educator. The curriculum at Wyoming Catholic is deeply Catholic. Uh, Thomas Aquinas is, is, is your organizing thinker, but you, your, your staff told me as I was preparing here that you, you wrote about movies for, for quite a while while you were in Dallas. What were you doing? Well,
1: I had, this was, I think of it as one of my midlife crises, you know, you have to have several of these, but I had been, I had been teaching at a place called the Dallas Institute for five years. It's a place, kind of a think tank in Dallas, uh, affiliated with the University of Dallas and its coursework, but not really part of it. And I had done that for five years, and a friend of mine, uh, Wick Allison, who's the publisher of American Conservative, was the founder of D Magazine, and he had just bought up these newspapers in Dallas that he wanted to um, have me help edit. So I, you know, kind of said, "Well, why not?" And I became a movie critic, theater critic. You know, wrote editorials, um, edited a, you know, big section of the newspaper. Um, so, so it was it was fun to do. So you you got you got to go to
0: all the movies and shows and theaters for free.
1: That's something people don't realize about movie critics.
0: <laughs> That's right. I, I had a girlfriend once in Atlanta who, who worked for the Atlanta Arts Council. We went every weekend. She, she, she was taking me to, to shows and plays and dances and symphony. It was wonderful.
1: And you, you get in free, right? Um, yeah. And then in the fall, if you're part of the organization, you know,
0: movie critics
1: in that city, they send you free DVDs of all the movies for your
0: consideration, well, he, here, this gets into my question. Well, you know, I, I, maybe I should ask you first some personal questions about your, your experience of movies. When you, when you were college age, when you look at the Wyoming Catholic students and you think about an, an exposure to film, making film part of their broader formation experience, when you look back on your college days, your younger days, what were, what were three movies? That really got to you. This is going back.
1: You know, when I was in college, uh, you know, almost ashamed to say it, the kinds of things that were, uh, you know, powerful experiences in the late '60s. Uh, things like Easy Rider, you know, with Peter Fonda, and um, who was was Jack Nicholson in that? Or was Jack Nicholson
0: Ma- had a smaller role. It was uh, Dennis Hopper was Dennis Hopper was course. the other guy. Uh, and then, going then
1: yeah, Jack Nicholson had five easy pieces. Um, of course, you know the graduate was was real big back in those days. Um, but the real experiences that I had in film probably came a little later than college. There was there was a movie theater in Atlanta when I lived there in my early twenties that would show you know classic films, and that's where I first saw. Uh, seven samurai
0: well now now that that just let me interrupt you i I lived in atlanta for for a long time what theater was that i can't remember i was trying to think of it earlier was it in buckhead i believe it was yeah yeah i think i know the theater uh, on peachtree street but go, go ahead so seven samurai
1: yeah and i saw these you know these old comedies that's where i first saw his girl friday and 20th century you know some of those um thirties comedies that were so just wonderfully witty, you know, the, the writing for them was terrific. Uh, especially Rosalind Russell, huh? Oh yeah. But, but seeing seven samurai was the, I mean, that was the movie that's still my favorite. Um, yeah. And I saw it there. It's just, it just had this kind of classic, um, pacing and, um, you know the whole idea of protecting the village and bringing in the samurai. Uh, the Magnificent Seven doesn't even come close to to getting at what's so excellent about Kurosawa's version, in my
0: opinion. No, that's it's Seven Samurai is is a great film. I think it's a great film for, for, for young men, you know, teenage boys to watch. As well because my son and I used to watch it every year together (laughs) well it it teaches forms of valor and and skill and principle uh, but without all the all the boastfulness and, and all of the all of the swagger that you see so much in in youth male culture
1: today well you you've got Toshiro Mifune trying to get all that swagger into the into it but yeah. But he's the, he's kind of the clown of it, you know? So, yeah.
0: So Seven Samurai, that, that stuck with you.
1: Chinatown. Chinatown. Uh, China. Oh boy. What a great movie.
0: Yeah. I mean,
1: that just gets at all the, what boy, all the uh, corruption underlying the founding of a city, you know, the, the Oedipal themes that go on there. Um, I just, every time I see that again, I'm impressed with just how good that is. The deer hunter was very, impacted me a lot um, in my 20s. It just had a real um, power, especially in giving some of the scenes, you know, from those Orthodox weddings and things in Pennsylvania. And of course the whole Russian roulette sequence was, just almost unbearable.
0: Indeed. I, I saw that in the theater and it, it was, it was unbearable that was the, the tension was, man, that was, that was too much. But, uh, all right. So if you, if you take film, do you see a place for it in a classical education?
1: You know, that's a great question, Mark. Um, I don't know how you introduce it into, you know, into a kind of classroom setting. Um, you know, I don't know if you have, say, a course in, in classic film, um, though I, I certainly see it as as something that, that students should be watching on the side. For example, ours are always organizing um, groups where they'll go over to um, someone's house, you know, and watch the film and talk about it at length. And they bring the same kinds of insights to their Watching and discussing of these films as they bring to the great texts, but I Guess making them part of the curriculum seems a bit much especially since we are an Integrated curriculum here, you know, and we're always trying to get in the absolutely necessary things that we feel like all students should read so um, I I feel like that's uh, like so, so many things we can't read in the curriculum, you know, it's it's like that. Uh, these are things you very much hope and encourage on the side, but, you know, putting them into the classroom seems a bit much.
0: Right, right. I mean, look, there's there's only so much time, and uh, they, they, you know, in, and in a way you think to yourself that, you know, so much of that material is accessible, you know, online or checking things out of the library. They can watch these films. Uh, on on their own, they need more help to study the great books. They need more support for for that. When I was in college in Los Angeles, uh, there were there were three or four. They were called revival houses. These theaters showing old films, and sometimes they'd have you know like an Orson Welles film festival or an Ingmar Bergman, and they'd show the whole corpus of Bergman's films, and they would change. The, they'd show the same two films. It was always a double feature, two films one night, and then the next night, and then they and then they do another two for two nights, and then another two. So you could go three times a week, and you could see different movies in one theater. It was only, there was only one screen, and the one I used to go to was called the New Art Theater down on Pico Boulevard, and it was it was fantastic because you you pay a couple a couple dollars, and I was able to see the whole you know virtually the whole corpus of of classic. Film, uh, American, foreign, silent, and, and and other, and and spoken film, and art films like uh, La Jetée, and the you know Fellini and Antonioni and, and Bresson. So that was, and it was just sitting in there and, and just enjoying that at night. It, w- it was fantastic. But what what's another one?
1: Uh, I was when you mentioned Fellini. When I was in college, that's when Amarcord came out, and
0: I love that.
1: You know, um, that was kind of late Fellini, but it sort of pulled me into his earlier work. Well, that's not, I mean, that sounds like something uh, you were very fortunate to be able to access. Um, you can't do that in Lander, Wyoming. I have to say, <laughs> we we have a movie we have a movie theater, and it shows one movie. You know, right now. Right now, it's onward.
0: <laughs> and and for someone who is doing a lot with light and perspective and and movement, you know the grammar of film imagery, you need the big screen. You know the small screen doesn't. I mean, Seven Samurai needs the big screen for for you to, to see the, the the movement there. So yeah. Well, we we can we can move. What about uh, what role does drama theater have? In in what in your curriculum?
1: Well, not enough. Um, again, you know, because of everything we're trying to do in the curriculum as a whole, it's difficult to, to do much outside um, the classroom. We don't have departments. We don't even really have. Um, you, you can't really say there's a theology major or anything like that because everybody takes all the same courses for the whole four years. So, um, putting in a drama. Um, requirement would be excessive. On the other hand, we have had for the last few years um, someone come in to direct a play at least once a year, and the the students who like drama uh, love being in that. So a couple of years ago, we did A Midsummer Night's Dream. Last year, we did uh, Murder in the Cathedral. This year, some students organized a production of The Tempest. So Um, You know, it's, it's alive here, but we, we can't give it the, you know, the place that you could, if you
0: um,
1: had a drama department, let's say, you know, or could do it full time.
0: And, and you mentioned a moment ago that all the students at Wyoming Catholic, they take the same courses. Right. Do they take them in the same order? Well, you know,
1: you come in as a freshman and you have a, you know, it's a set curriculum. So, yeah they everybody <laughs> takes the same thing it's 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 like the old
0: days and it's very clear to them from the start it's all laid out for you there is no there is no student choice there are no electives here we have a curriculum we think that this is the right formation for 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 all of the students here
1: now when they get into junior year the second semester they have what we call the junior author project and the student will pick a particular author and spend the semester doing research, um, you know, background, uh, reading deeply into that particular author, writing papers, doing a final paper, so they get, they get the experience of doing something entirely on their own. And then that, that also happens in senior year with the, uh, the senior thesis, which is of their own choosing. And then uh, in the spring of senior year, they give an oration. So those are all matters of student choice. An oration to the
0: entire student body and faculty?
1: Well, whoever can come, Uh, you know, just because of scheduling, we have to do two at a time. But yeah, they get they get large audiences. The public is invited, you know. So whoever can come in to hear them can. And we try to make those so they're not—you know—they don't read a paper. They—they they really speak uh, from notes, uh, or at, you know, if, at at the best, they just you know talk eloquently for half an hour. Right. Why do
0: the students come there? I think it's a mix of things. Um,
1: I don't think the students that we get would come if it were not for the outdoor program. Um, we are—we're a strong, great book school, and and we're strongly Catholic, and I think some would come for that, but most of them are really attracted to the whole mix of things. So, you know, the, the idea that they're going to be able to ride horses while they're here or that they're going to have constant opportunities to go up into the mountains for hiking or rock climbing or um, kayaking on the whitewater rivers around here. Um, all those things are, are attractive to the kind of student that we um, that we get. They're also, I mean, they're very serious students. I don't mean it in any way to downplay to downplay the academics. I just think that these tend to be young people who are looking for
0: that whole range of experience. Are, are a lot of them from cities, and they want to get away from all the concrete for a while? Um, I don't have
1: a strong sense that that's the case. Uh, A lot of them are from, as I mentioned earlier, from the Midwest or New England. A lot of them are from California. And I don't get the impression that, that they're predominantly urban. In fact, I wonder if they would come if they were truly habituated to life in a big city, you know, where they want the symphony or the art museums. No, like no, that. no,
0: Glenn. Glenn, the bars. The bars, of course. The bars. Well, we have- the, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the the you know the the. <laughs> uh, well, that that's what makes Wyoming Catholics so strongly countercultural, right? Because so many young people they they want to be where the action is, right? They want to they want to be in Manhattan. They want to be in the Bay Area. They want to be on the coastal cities or or in the or in the cool college towns like Austin or Madison, and. And so you know, for a lot of them, you know, the the, the great outdoors, the the life in the you know, life out in the wild, that probably to them seems distressingly lonely. But you know, you have you 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 wrote a little piece recently called "The Deep Power of Joy," and I, I I printed it up and and read through it. And one of the things that you do in that piece is you quote from Wordsworth, and you. You're taking this as a reflection upon the role of the landscape, in a way, in the experience of the Wyoming Catholic College and the Roman Catholic University, and Wordsworth's experience of nature shows that nature is not a place of loneliness. It's a place of spiritual comfort, that there is, there is a, a healing power uh, out there in nature. Is that what you found? Is that why you pulled the, the poem out?
1: Yes. Um, you know, I'd been teaching it in the humanities sequence, and it struck me how powerfully it addresses what we're trying to do in the program here. Um, for Wordsworth, those experiences of the mountain landscape in Wales are, you know, that's part of what he understands is formative of his moral life. Um, and just trying to tease that out a little bit and think how that might be the case is what i was trying to do in that piece and it you know when we were talking about it in class all the students you know have had these experiences up in the wind river mountains or the tetons or um you know down in the moab or places like that and they you know it was instantly recognizable to them um even Wordsworth sense that you can't get back that first experience you have of it, you know, that first magic of it is is not something you exactly recover by going back, though you can remember that experience and sort of superimpose it on the one you're having at the present. But even the, you know, the those almost um, undiscernible effects, you know, that it has on, On your, on your character. Those are the things that that you begin to muse on with this kind of experience,
0: right? In in *Tintern Abbey*, it's not his first visit. He's coming back after five years away. He's 28 years old now, and he's remembering back then. And then he's reflecting on how his experience of *Tintern Abbey* changed him, influenced him while he was living in the cities and working and getting away from the the sublimity here. Of nature, and it's, it's so. It's a, yeah. It's a very reflective poem at the same time that it's trying to describe a landscape. It really is about the the influence of this upon this uh, sympathetic soul.
1: And, and Wordsworth is watching his younger sister Dorothy, who is about the same age he was when he experienced it earlier, and that also resonated with our students because many of them become um, leaders who take out the, the freshmen on their 21-day trip or lead them on outdoor trips in the fall and the spring. So how to let them have the experience, you know, of that first wonder, without trying to over-determine it for them, like a, an intrusive uh, guide, you know, that you might have on a on a tour. Um, that's that, that came across as, as very important. Um,
0: what is the 21-day trip?
1: Uh, that's when the freshmen come in. I was mentioning that earlier. They, they go up into the mountains for, for 21 days, backpacking um, in small groups, and they uh, come back after that three weeks in the wilderness and start their classes. So it's, it's quite an adventure.
0: Uh, uh, Dr. Glenn, what about the grizzly bears?
1: The grizzly bears are up in the Teton Wilderness. So, you know... You, you keep them at a distance by making a lot of noise, and <laughs> but and you've got
0: your bear spray.
1: Bear spray is there, is very important in Wyoming. That's right.
0: Right. I, I was in Yellowstone. Uh, we we camped in Yellowstone about six years ago, seven years ago, and there there had been some. There had been a couple grizzly attacks. So they were they were, the people leading us were very careful about uh, about keeping that keeping that handy.
1: Well, and and you know the. There's a lot of training that goes into going up into the up into the mountains. What you do, what you don't do, um, and staying in groups and making noise when, particularly if you're in a situation where there might be grizzly bears. All those are things our students learn very quickly.
0: Yeah, and they, it's one way to learn how to how to how to escape danger, how to avoid danger by being in a place that can perhaps be sometimes a little dangerous i mean my 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 you know my son got a got a little knife the other day and and uh you know my my wife wasn't sure I mean, he's fourteen every you know every 14 year old boy should have his have a have a knife but the the point is if he doesn't have a knife he's never going to know how to handle a sharp object i mean it, it actually helps produce a safer sense of of things right
1: <laughs> you know having a little danger present and learning how to deal with it is is simply, you know, part of what you do and building up virtues, you know, virtue of courage. You can't have the virtue of courage if you never have situations of danger.
0: Are there are there cases where after a year or two, some students, they just this isn't for me and they. they Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, some of them you find it's not for them in one way or another. And usually that's academic rather than um, outdoors or or something else, uh, they love the community here. Most of them, um, few outsiders.
0: Well, maybe you know. Sometimes it, it may be hard to do your homework when 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 the mountains are beckoning.
1: I think that's um, that's the case. But you know, there are other things as, as we as we know that also beckons.
0: <laughs> well, now so, there's you know. one thing that, that I have to say. I I just don't I don't know if this is. I mean, you, you don't allow cell phones that's true Dr. Glenn, I mean don't you think isn't this a little bit of in, in, cruel and inhumane
1: it, of course it is um, but you know the, the effect of that has been pretty marvelous you know our students are present to each other they're present in the classroom when people come here to speak they're kind of astonished at you know the um just I guess you know the word I'm going to repeat is their presence. You know, to you, um, they're not they're not elsewhere. So uh, I think that's made a huge difference.
0: No, no, the cell phone in the in the in the youth's hands is is a, is an instrument of uh, stupefaction. And that's, <laughs> that's my. So I think you're you're doing ab- absolutely the right thing. I would love to see more campuses go. You know, sh- shut down that. Uh, shut down the social media. So, anyway, this is Dr. Uh, Dr. Glenn Arbury, President of Wyoming Catholic University. Thank you for joining us, sir.
1: You bet. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 877-